Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family. You can find all of our resources at our website, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about transitioning home as a newly adopted family. We will be talking with Laura Jean Beauvais. She is a licensed professional counselor, the mother of two adult daughters through adoption, and she has conducted domestic, foster, and international adoptions for more than 25 years. She has guided many families, some while in crisis, as they transition home with their newly adopted children. Welcome, Laura, to Creating a Family. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, Don. Appreciate this. We're going to talk about two different types or two different ages of children because I think that does, there are some similarities and there are some differences depending on what age child you are talking about that you're adopting. So we're going to start by talking about newborn adoption, brand new babies domestic private adoption. And then we're going to talk about adopting, transitioning home, adopting an, either an older child or honestly just a child past infancy, because I think there are some similarities regardless of whether that child past infancy is coming from foster or international or a domestic placement as well. So, but let's start with newborn adoption. So what are some of the common emotions when parents are adopting a newborn, other than the, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening. Oh, after all this time, I am so happy. So, and that's obviously just an an immense relief that parents feel because often they've waited, many of them are coming from infertility. So they've waited a very long time. So they're just beyond excited. So that's one emotion that's that's just really fun. Um, What are some of the other emotions, fun or not so fun? Yeah. Well, of course, there are a lot of emotions and I adopted my children as newborn infants. So I I could really relate to some of those emotions that you have, particularly with my oldest uh, child. Um, I think there could be a lot of uncertainty, depending upon the state laws, if the birth parents can change their minds and their quote unquote interference or anything of that nature. And there That, of course, is always going to leave you feeling a little bit unsettled. And oftentimes people will say, I'm going to do an international adoption because I know the birth parents can't come back. Now, whether those fears are real or not, it certainly is something that is there. And I think I think people do experience that. Um, I remember having one family. This is years ago. Whose child, actually newborn infant. In fact, they were adopting two at the same time back when people were that, say, about 20 years ago. And one of the children uh, had um, medical issues. And they, I remember they're saying, oh, my parents aren't responding the way that they would respond to my other uh, siblings, children, if they were in the hospital or something like that. So you really, if there's anything that is going wrong, you really do want your family there as if this were a biological child. Um, also, um, Sometimes families are very stressed, and this is something that we really see a lot of, is in relation to the birth parents, primarily the birth mom. They've had a relationship often with her, and they might have actually developed a really good friendship, but now everything has changed. The birth mom was in control, the parent is in control of the relationship, and that alone creates a certain level of stress. Well, now I decide how much we're going to go ahead and communicate and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I know families sometimes contacted me and said, 
the birth mom keeps texting me and wanting pictures. And, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes it's like a grandma who lives out of state. And I like what you said, Dawn. Sometimes think of birth family relatives as being like your own relatives. Sometimes things yeah. are, you know, better than other times and whatnot. And of course, these our relationships are dynamic. And so they're going to change. And there's a real instant change from the moment that birth mother gives birth and you take that child home suddenly. Yeah, and I that's think that's so a true. huge stressor. You know, okay, so let's unpack some of this because you've mentioned some really great points. One is depending on what state you live in, uh, an adoptive parent may have custody of the baby while there is still a, the chance that the adopt, um, the, the birth parents could revoke their relinquishment. Mm-hmm. Right. And that depends on the state. So uh, those people listening, yes. that is uh, adoption is governed by state law. If you've listened to us very long, you've heard that a lot. So adoptions are governed by state law, which means that, that there are different revocations from no revocation time to in a, a, a much longer revocation time. Mm-hmm. And there is that that feeling of of should I attach? Should I not attach as a parent? You know, is my heart going to be broken? And And that throws, I mean, I think we are, most of us want to immediately fall head over heels in love and, and, and attach completely from that moment on, whether or not that's a, a fiction or not, we all expect that. But if there's this possibility that this child is not going to be yours, that, that plays with your ability to truly throw yourself in with abandon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And of course, even we're later going to talk about foster children, foster to adopt. And of course, that is very present in those yes. types of uh, arrangements, of course. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I know for me, yeah, did you want to say anything else just about the stressor with the relationship with the birth mom or, or birth father? Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I thought that yeah. I, I think that actually raises some really interesting points of some of the feelings that, and oftentimes they are unexpected from the adoptive parent standpoint, because as you pointed out, they have a relationship that they've established, oftentimes, not always. But at all of a sudden, we call it the shift of power, and it's dramatic, mm-hmm. and it happens overnight from the perception of what, a, and this partly is perception, and, and honestly, this is more perception for adoptive parents because I think that oftentimes expectant parents don't necessarily feel like they are the ones mm-hmm. with the power. But in fact, the adopt, from the adoptive parent standpoint, prior to birth and prior to the, the birth parents signing the relinquishment documents, mm-hmm. it, there is a feeling that, that the, the expectant parents and then after birth, the birth parents hold the power. But the moment those relinquishment papers are the revocation period, depending on where what their state law is, that power shifts to the adoptive parents. And sometimes adoptive parents recognize the shift. Sometimes they don't. But the vast majority of birth parents do recognize that shift in power. And it's confusing, I think, for, for both sets of parents uh, to... Uh, to navigate that and to and to uh, to navigate that shift and and for adoptive parents, uh, what do you recommend for them at that point to help them uh, understand what the birth parents are going through and what their the new role reversals are? Right, exactly. Well, I remember this was an adoptive mom who this is years ago before openness was so so open as as today and. The birth mom had said, you know, 
not only did I lose my best friend, the adoptive mom had become her best friend because oftentimes adoptive parents do step into that role as a support system Mm -hmm. and someone who is encouraging the birth mom. But she said, I also lost my baby in this, in this time. And now I feel like I lost my baby and my best friend. And so that's a huge burden on a, on an adoptive family. And I think that to recognize that there's going to have to be a shift and maybe talking about that even ahead of time, you know, what the, what each person's expectation is. And sometimes we have, of course, um, expectant moms and talk about what do they, what do they want when they get to the hospital, as far as holding the baby, sharing time with the adoptive family and, you know, being in the labor and delivery. And of course, all that can change too, in a moment. And not even when a birth mom is ready to go through with the whole adoption plan and sign the relinquishments, et cetera, how you're going to feel in that moment is is going to be different. And I think really having someone who's a good counselor, a good agency, Mm -hmm. a pregnancy counselor, really talking to all the parties about that, that it doesn't, this is, these are some of the issues that may arise. And I think being really transparent with everyone and kind of bringing out those hard issues ahead of time, I think would really be the way to go ahead and do that. And a third person, because because adoptive families are not playing the role of counselor for, the, should they? for the birth mom. Or and that, they're not. They have right. a vested interest. Yeah. Right. Exactly. They really need to be there, not as so much as a support, but as somebody who is adopting the child and who's going to be in a lifelong relationship. They're all going to be in a lifelong relationship. And that relationship will change over time. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say that you know, maybe having a discussion saying, I know you're going to probably want lots of pictures. And sometimes I might be just really tired and I may not be able to uh, always send that. Because I think with texting in particular, that that has that immediate response. You know, we're sitting in a restaurant or with somebody and the text comes and we interrupt that conversation and it's kind of rude, but we all do it. (laughs) And, um, And so just to say, you know what, if you could just give me a half hour to an hour, I, as long as we have this, this kind, I think the texting one seems to be a really big issue. Sending through email, email, we have a different kind of expectation. Yeah. We don't expect things instantly. We could send out an email at three in the morning and know we may not hear until three in the afternoon from that person. So I, again, uh, maybe having some of those, those harder talks um, with the, with the family, but asking your agency or the counselor that's, putting this adoption, you know, helping you with your adoption, answering some of those kind of questions for you. You know, I think having these conversations ahead of time, having, uh, listening to this and understanding what, what things you should discuss. I do think that something that catches adoptive parents by surprise sometimes is feeling resentful that the birth mom or the birth parents or the birth extended family, but most often it's the birth mom, are in in their mind intruding and and somehow interfering with them feeling like the, and and their air quotes here, the real mom. I think that there's that feeling of she's still there. So the reality is I'm not this child's only Mm -hmm. mom. And, And that's hard to deal with sometimes. Right. Yes. And, you you know, when you go through infertility, you can feel shame and quote unquote, not normal, just like all your friends who get pregnant. And then you go through the adoption and that isn't quote unquote, the usual way of obviously bringing a child into your family. And now you have to deal with issues related to the birth mom and they could be very positive. It could be a great relationship. She could be a very positive person, but again, it, it, it kind of is a constant reminder. I'm not 
I'm not the full mother. I'm not the full biological mother. I really want to just pretend everything is very normal. And, and in many ways it is. I mean, you're changing diapers, you're feeding a baby, you're getting up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. There are no issues to address with this child. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just you treat this child just as you would a child who's been, uh, who's who's been born to you but then there's always this outside reminder whereas if you adopt an older child there's always other reminders obviously that this child is adopted and not a biological child Mm -hmm. and I think of course when people do want to adopt a newborn they're trying to replicate as close Mm -hmm. to possible what is what has also happened I think one of the other stressors that can come is also the expectation from family members, especially well, related to the birth mom. Uh, we have to always remember that when we go into adoption, we've gone through a grieving period. We've said, okay, we're not going to have a biological child, but now we're going to have an adopted child. Maybe the adopted child won't be the same race. So it'll be a different race. And we've kind of adjusted, maybe not necessarily a newborn, but maybe a little bit older child, whatever. And so we've gone through all these, all these steps in our mind of going from perfect biological child Mm -hmm. who is like us to all the variations, maybe a child with special needs, whatever. And And so our family members have not gone through that process. Mm -hmm. We just announced, oh, we're adopting a two-year-old child of a different race or from another country or whatever. And suddenly we're asking them to go through that process that maybe has taken us years to go through, to go through in a matter of 15 minutes and saying, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be really happy for us Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to be totally accepting. And um, I I think that could be hard. And then going back to the newborn infant, Perhaps maybe it was a drug-seeking birth mom, and there are many complications, and you're still in a relationship with her. And maybe your mom, you as the adoptive mom, your mom doesn't understand why you would be Mm -hmm. talking to that lady who produced a drug-exposed child. Mm -hmm. And all those kind of emotions that you're battling. Sure, not understanding openness and saying, you know, the best thing you could do, if you want to be that baby's real mom, you know, why are you having this relationship? This is, mm-hmm. you know, and discouraging you. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I, I know uh, adoptive grandparents now and who say, I really worry about that openness. I'm afraid that that boy is going to want to go back and be with his family mm-hmm. because he sees his birth mom regularly. You know, those kind of things. Regular. So you're also trying to navigate, oh my goodness, I have to explain this to my parents that mm-hmm. while I'm here in town, I'm also going to be visiting the birth mom or the birth father or, or relatives right. or whatever. So yeah, it yeah. gets very complicated. I, I do think another thing dealing with extended family is there not all adoptive families do this, but some are are hypervigilant to make certain that their parents are responding to their newborn, their new adopted newborn, the same way they would with a uh, if the baby had been biological, and that can cause stress because they may be right that their parents are responding differently, but it may just be that, as you're pointing out, the situation is different. There is another family involved. There is, this baby may not look like their their other grandchildren. So there's a lot involved, but that can cause uh, hurt feelings from the adoptive family standpoint, or the adoptive parent standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. There, and, and some of this could be subtle. Some of it could be perceived, as you said, some of it could be very real. Yes, and exactly. Again, 
And maybe again, talking about those conversations ahead of time that maybe you just don't spring on your parents you, three days before you're going to a child is going to be born. Oh, by the way, that you really do have this conversation with them uh, along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not always going to hear what you want to hear either. And, and realizing that, that uh, explaining the, the purpose also when you are talking about openness or when you are talking about adoption in general, I think it is helpful to let your, through your language you use to let your parents know that you're not seeking their permission, that you're telling them the way, what, what is going to happen. I think sometimes we slip into a child role again, and our parents think that we're asking for permission, so they feel very comfortable sharing their thoughts. And sometimes their thoughts are discouraging for what you think, what you're planning on doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, keeping in mind yes. that uh, one needs to, uh, to be the, uh, you are an adult and you need to, um, uh, not seek your parents' permission for what you are planning on doing. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a moment to let you know of a terrific course we've just added to our Adopted Online Education Center. It's titled Preparing Kids Already in the Home for an Adoption. You know, it's easy to be so excited about bringing home a new baby or child that we forget that we may need to do some proactive work to prepare our existing kiddos for this new arrival. This is especially the case if the new child will be past infancy. You can find this course by going to our where all of our online learning education centers are, and that is adoptioned.org. That's adoptioned.org. I wanted to talk a little now about how the pre-adoption process, that what we as adoptive parents go through to become parents, uh, the applying, the the going through a home study, the preparing for a domestic infant, preparing a, a profile, having to be quote unquote, judged by uh, expectant parents, uh, feeling that you're having to market yourself. And some people feel that they're competing with every other because there are more adoptive parents out there looking for uh, infants than there are infants. So that is a process, oftentimes a long and arduous process. So how does that process uh, potentially impact this transition home? Sure. Well, Fortunately, through the adoption process and the home study process, adoptive families become very well educated. And you sometimes sense that sometimes there's a resentment there, like no other parent has to have this level of education or I'm I'm so much more worthy of of, um, being a parent than so many other people that I hear of or know of. And and yet someone is judging me. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you've gone through infertility, you may have shame related to that. And now suddenly you um, are being judged once again, and there's further shame in going ahead and being judged. And of course, when we're being assessed, we want to present ourselves as the perfect family, the perfect Mm -hmm. couple, the perfect parent, potential parent, or if you're already a parent, that you're already parenting your children very, very well, and everybody is well adjusted. And of course, (laughs) And perfectly yes. behaved too. Let's just let's right. That My children, yes, yes, right. Yes. They're they're just great yeah, all, the time. Yeah. all and, the time. And so, and you know, people sometimes are honest with you to a certain extent, but we 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 almost don't expect them to be that honest because if there is that level of, of transparency, then there is the potential of saying, okay, you're either going to have to go to counseling or you're going to have to take more assessments or 
you're, we're going to put your adoption plan on hold until these issues are resolved, and sometimes very rightfully so. And so I, I think that's a huge stress. And so then after once a child does come, and, and again, a newborn may not present as many issues because you're except for the usual issues of no sleep and feeding and changing diapers and so and forth. not knowing what but, you're doing. Yeah, yeah, right. That um, that you, if you need help, your agency may not be the place that you want to go because you've already presented yourself as the ideal parent. Yep. Now you sort of have to backtrack on yourself and saying, you know, I'm really struggling with this. And oh, by the way, I've had these kind of issues in the past and this is really bringing up some other issues for me which has never been addressed in the home study or anything like that. So, or, you know, a child isn't getting along or there's jealousy or whatever there may be. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that also adds to this. I I can't really tell the truth to my agency who should be there to support me. And and as much as, and of course I work for an agency um, and we do encourage our families to come along and say, yes, I, you know, please come and contact us. But at the same time, there is the, there is that idea that you may want to adopt again. And what are they going to go ahead and, and think about that? Yeah. And later we're going to talk uh, about post-adoption depression and we will, we will circle mm-hmm. back to this as for sure. Yeah. Dawn, one other thing I do want to say about, yeah, about a, a, perhaps a stressor, but just something to make also parents aware of that. I think when people adopt a newborn and they, they get a newborn that it's as much like giving birth as possible. And in many ways it is because the child is coming obviously home with you and the child isn't being abused or neglected or having multiple moves or anything like that. But we're learning more and more that that prenatal environment is so important. And one thing I do say to families is that every birth mom, expected mom, is under a great deal of stress. If she were not under a great deal of stress, if her life were very very, um, what what we would all like our life to be while pregnant, she would not be placing this baby for adoption. Mm -hmm. And so even making an adoption plan is a great stress to to an expecting birth Mm -hmm. mom. So I would just have parents just realize that your child could have higher needs than even that you expect. And so a further stressor could be like, oh, all my other friends got to go right back to work after they had their babies. I cannot go ahead and do that. My child may have some extra needs that I just cannot place my baby in, say, um, a daycare setting or have another person come in. Whatever it may be that your child has those extra emotional needs that you may not even be aware of, Mm -hmm. that I think that we need to um, just to be really aware of that. Because as our kids start to age, we start to realize that there are things. And then also even the stress of how am I going to tell other people about my child's situation mm-hmm. and how much do I tell? Or when the, the the lady at the checkout says, oh, your child looks nothing like you. And, you know, whatever. Where did you get those blue eyes from? So I, just to be aware that those are added dimensions to the adoption process. And those are more lifelong. They're not just there at infancy, mm-hmm. but they carry in. And I think we, we carry that with us as we, as we begin to parent. And, and often if we haven't thought about it ahead of time, this transition period is when we're first grappling with it and first realizing that this could be an issue that, and, 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 and it just complicates the transition because you mm-hmm. are having to deal with a new issue. I am thankful that you raised the issue of 
how much information to share because that is a very real issue in the transition. Now, it, right. is, uh, it is applicable to both uh, adoptions past infancy, which would occur with foster and international and even some domestic uh, private adoptions, but it also occurs with newborn. And, and, and in particular, we see it happening with newborn adoptions because this is a newborn who cannot hear what you are saying. Mm -hmm. and, and it's easy not to think into the future that this child is going to become a three-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old, an 18-year-old. And once information is shared, it's out there and people don't forget. So as you're holding an infant and you're thinking about, well, you know, the mom used, oh my God, every type of drug you can imagine. And the dad was incarcerated for blah, 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 blah. And, and all this information is, as you're sharing it, doesn't feel like it's impacting this child because the child is, is pre-comprehension. But the people you tell are not going to forget that information. <laughs> and they're going to remember it throughout your child's life. So we caution people um, about uh, how much to share. How much do you, what, what do you tell families about uh, sharing the sensitive parts of their child's adoption story? Sure. Well, of course, we want to address secrecy versus privacy. And we never want children to feel like their life is a secret or anything. But at the same time, we always want to respect privacy. And so I, I do caution, obviously, depending upon the person, depending upon where you're at, there is no need to share even about adoption when you're at the checkout at the grocery store. As much as you can to use a little bit of humor, never to say to be sarcastic. So if someone says, where do those blue eyes come from? You know, you don't say, how dare you ask me such a personal question? <laughs> because your child eventually is going to pick up on that kind mm -hmm. of response. And so the other thing is, is that, you know, as you, as you share stories like this, as people say, you know, maybe why did the birth mom make this decision? And of course, don't expect them to use positive adoption language. Why did she make, you know, they'll ask you, why did she give up this baby for adoption? You oh, know, that, that baby is so thing. beautiful. How could she have given it up? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. What type of person would do that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, ex exactly. I mean, and not just your relatives. This could be when you take your child to the doctor. Mm -hmm. I had one adoptive mom. Again, this is going back over almost 30 years ago, but she brought her newborn adopted infant to the doctor, the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, in reference to the birth mom, she should be shot. Mm. You, you, again, fortunately, this is a newborn infant, yes. but that kind of attitude, you, you immediately change doctors, by the way. But again, it's another stress that's on an adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yes, maybe doctors today would not say, such overtly negative statements about about a birth parent but at the same time and it's it is an opportunity to educate but kindly educate uh, i try to remember the ignorant things that i have said when i was very very young i remember i was in florida with my family as a teenager and talking to this woman who had like three biological or six biological sons and her little, her little adopted girls, and I asked her, do you love your adopted children as much as you love your biological children? And she was so gracious to me and yeah. so kind. She said, you know, probably even more. And, and that was a great education. Mm -hmm. So I, I do remember how people were kind to me in my teenage years or yes. whatever yeah. on, on comments that were made. 
So again, it's going to be how other people are going to, to perceive it. And um, certainly maybe a doctor you will share about the birth moms, obviously her medical history, the mm-hmm. drug seeking activities, that sort of thing, maybe even birth father um, history as well as much as you know, but it doesn't have to, again, have to be shared with family members. Mm-hmm. And I like your suggestion that you don't, that you, you need to think through and have in your back pocket some responses and you could have a series of responses depending on the situation. But uh, one uh, nice trick for uh, transitioning or, or in the transitionary period would be when somebody says, um, why did her parents give her up? Or why did her parents give her away? Or something like that. Is to shift it and be more general and just say, mm-hmm. there are so many reasons that, uh, that uh, parents decide that they're not able to parent. And it's never an easy decision. And just keep it nice and general. And it's seldom that somebody will push past that. And if they do, then you can always say, you know, that's personal information that we don't share. Mm-hmm. Um, or whatever it is you feel like you want to say, but uh, changing right. the subject. And, that, I, and I do like that, as you said. And in counseling, it's a very counseling term, narrative. And regardless of what life experience that you have, I mean, whether it's something very, um, again, we can have all sorts of things like, divorce or miscarriages, whatever, it may be flunking out of school, you create a narrative for that and how you are gonna explain something to Mm -hmm. other people. Uh, Because we've all had failures in our lives and there is a way that we can explain it in a very negative or we can say it in a not not necessarily artificially positive, but appropriate way that makes Mm -hmm. everyone feel comfortable. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the thing is that, as you said, kind of a rehearsal of what is going to be your child's narrative at this point in life. And then as your child matures, you can go ahead and ask them, honey, how do you want me to handle this when so-and-so asks this? I know with my children, because I was an ado- I'm an adoption professional, I would often talk about adoption. And my, pa- my children would tug on me and say, mom, be sure to tell them that we're adopted. So my kids really wanted me to share. Other children don't do not want that to be mm-hmm. sure they want that to be kept private so yeah mm-hmm. so checking it out all right mm-hmm. and and before we move off of talking about adopting a newborn i wanted to talk you have said a couple of times about uh infertility and uh coming to adoption from infertility and i've read in different stats but the the kind of the universal stat that i see is especially for newborn infant adoption about 80 percent of the people come to adoption from infertility Mm-hmm. And I think we, although we certainly discourage this thought, but it's still very common for people to enter adoption with the thought that adopting a baby will cure their infertility, will put to rest any of the grief and the sense of failure that they have from their infertility struggles. And that often, very often, doesn't happen and can be a surprise to people in this transition period because here they were expecting this infertility dragon to be totally slayed and and put in their past and never to rise its ugly head again. And in fact, often that doesn't happen. And they, they feel some of the grief of not having given birth or the grief that people look at this baby and say, gosh, it doesn't look anything like you or the grief that they didn't fall immediately in love with the assumption that they probably would have fallen immediately in love, even though that may be false, but with their mm-hmm. a child born to them. So let's talk a little about how infertility struggles and the reoccurrence of infertility grief uh, can impact this transition time. 
Well, I think, first of all, infertility really puts you out of control. And you, you cannot, it's very hard to plan. And something that you think, especially when you have a lot of infertility that may be um, undiagnosed, say, you know, it's, this, is the, this is the infertility, this is the treatment. Most people don't have that. It's, it's every month really waiting mm-hmm. and seeing what's going to go ha- happen and then trying different treatments and if they work or if they don't work. So there's, there is that lack of control there. And in adoption, of course, you have that whole lack of control as well. And um, until until you actually have the child. And so I think in some ways you still feel like, am I really in control of this situation? And in some ways, maybe that can make you wanna be more in control suddenly when you do have a child. So finally I have this child. Now I am finally in control, but you still are not in control. <laughs> oh Lordy, no, you're not. <laughs> yes, you're not, no. No. And I I remember for myself, the one thing that I felt like was really hard is that you have this child and now you want to give this child a sibling. And just like everybody else wants siblings normally for their, for their child. And you go to the park and you see other people who are pregnant and now they're having their next baby. And when you're going through infertility, it's like, I don't know Mm -hmm. how long it's going to be Mm -hmm. before my child is going to go ahead and have a sibling. And uh, so, so it kind of, again, it it carries on. And I remember the moment I adopted my child, my, my first daughter, Erica, I was longing for another baby because I wanted to make sure she had, she had a sibling. So that was always in the back of my mind there. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, we tell people that infertility, I mean, that adoption cures only one of the many losses of infertility. Adoption cures, if, if and I'm using air quotes around that, mm-hmm. the, the uh, inability to parent because adoption makes you a parent. But adoption does not give you the experience of pregnancy. It doesn't give you the experience necessarily and, and most often of breastfeeding. It doesn't give you the experience of sharing that communal, when you uh, uh, sharing of, of, of your war stories, your labor and your delivery mm-hmm. stories that in particular young mothers of babies tend to do when they get together. So there's so many things, or, and it doesn't cure the, uh, the, the looking at your, the, the longing to look at the child that you are convinced will be the perfect combination of yours and your partner's genes. So adoption doesn't cure those things. And, and, and coming to some resolution of those losses before you adopt is really helpful because otherwise it could take you by surprise in the transition period if you haven't worked some of that through. Mm-hmm. I remember when my children were very young, I belonged to a woman's Bible study and they, they were all young mothers and the one of the, they would give their war stories. And one of the ladies finally said to me, she goes, does it bother you, Laura, when we talk about our whole labor and delivery and usually all the pain involved? And I said, no, I love hearing your stories because <laughs> it's what I, I didn't go through. But, you know, there is there is that, you, you know, just like when you go through a war, as you said, yes. the war stories, that there is that camaraderie that you do mm-hmm. have for the pain that you experience together. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and there is that there is a, uh, a piece missing, of course, there. Um, mm-hmm. I know our, our agency has a very strong embryo adoption program and one of the one of the great promotions of the program is you get to experience labor and delivery. And I'm like, is that really a marketing tool for it? But it, yeah. it, it really is because it's one piece that's yeah. closer 
to the reality of what women really do go through. And if nothing else, it's the pregnancy, you know, the, you know, the yes. feeling of and the, the baby. control, obviously, on yeah. the pregnancy. And the and control. That's another loss yes. that you do Exactly. Have, is yes. you, you do have that loss during the pregnancy and what happens. And, and, and I know that this might be a little bit controversial, but, you know, the older I get and the more I see, um, I really do think there is a primal wound that a child does have in being removed from her birth mom. And I think, I think we really do need to acknowledge that and that loss that that child has. And that's a real painful thing mm -hmm. um, to go ahead. And I'm probably getting a little bit more ahead. It isn't so much transition because you, those are the kind of discussions that you have a little bit later with your child. Mm -hmm. But I remember somebody telling me, have you ever told your child, I'm sorry that you weren't able to be raised by your birth mom? And I never, I, of course, I never said that. I'm so glad that I got to, you know, having gone through infertility, that I got to actually parent my daughters. I would never think of saying that to them. But when somebody told me that, this was about four years ago, I went to each one of my daughters and I said to each one separately, they didn't know I was talking to the other. Would it have helped if I had told you that I'm really sorry that you couldn't be raised by your birth mom? They said, yes, that would have been helpful. And I was very, very open with my children about adoption. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was nothing, hardly anything that was not uncovered and very open about openness and adoption. And, and yet that's really important. And to go into this saying, I love this child, but I'm still sorry mm -hmm. that you cannot be raised by your birth parents. That's, that's a hard struggle to carry into parenthood right at the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're right. It is. And whether or not it hits you in this transition period or hits you a little later, it's still hard. It is absolutely uh -huh. hard. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bit.ly, B I T dot L Y slash all cap J B F, then cap S for support. So J B F S, that's all capitalized, then U P P O R T. All right. We've talked about domestic infant, many of the same things we, uh, parents will feel when they're adopting a child past infancy. But there are some additional complications or some additional issues when we're adopting a child past infancy, and that would happen through adopting through foster care or through international, uh, because the vast majority of international adoptions now are, are toddlers at the youngest. So what are some of the, the stresses, We've, the emotions and excitement and all that is absolutely there, but what are some of the stresses that parents feel in the transition period when they are adopting a toddler, a preschooler, a elementary schooler, or beyond? Well, this is something I deal with constantly with my families here at the agency and getting lots of support calls and working with them, usually in the transition phase, once a child is home. Um, and they're, they're very numerous. You know, when you have an infant, you're really dealing with physical needs. But now with, these, with children, you're dealing with a background of trauma due to abuse, neglect, multiple caretakers. And so their behavior could be very, what we call dysregulated. That basically means that they could be all over the place. They could be 
you can have an eight-year-old who is more like a two-year-old emotionally in many ways, looks like maybe a six, seven-year-old, maybe has the sophistication and the hypervigilance of a 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so you, just the just dealing with a child who is very, very different from a typical, say, you're adopting an eight-year-old, how different that is from having an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the, your own expectations need to come into play here of what you, the needs are going to be for your family. This isn't just mm-hmm. bringing in a grade a school age child who can make his own peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and dress himself and be on his way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many times, uh, I don't know that people say this so much anymore, but I think earlier on people didn't realize all the needs that children do have. Mm-hmm. And they would think, Oh, it's not an infant. He's so much easier to take care of than an infant. Well, no, meeting the physical needs of a child, an infant is way easier than meeting the needs of an eight year old who comes from a background of trauma. Mm -hmm. And then I think one of the other things that we do, particularly with international adoptees, is that we tell families they need to cocoon, that we need to go ahead and we need to kind of shut out the world and we need to stay at home. And if you think about that, you know, we've got to, we all got to experience some of that during COVID. Well, it means not being with your friends, not being with your relatives, not having your support system, maybe not going to work, all the things that we have in our lives that, that support us. So now we have this tremendous um, high needs child who is coming to our lives. We're told to cocoon and then not to have all the support that we normally have. And that is very, very difficult. Now, fortunately, through the internet and FaceTime and so forth, maybe we can connect more with friends, but still it's not the same as having those face-to-face experiences. Again, we've all learned that through COVID that we really do need that face-to-face and that real human contact with others. Mm-hmm. So that that is a tremendous stress for families and what they are going ahead and dealing with. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on. Well, I was going to say, I was going back to what you said about it's, one of the things that we face uh, as a the, as the, as an organization that is uh, whose mission is to educate and support adoptive and foster families is helping families set realistic expectations because we all ha- there's a certain amount of idealism that it takes to adopt an older child or a child past infancy and one of the ways we do it is by thinking the worst is not going to happen to us but the 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 flip side of that coin is if we if we become that myopic and are, and aren't able to realize that it could happen to us, then we don't have realistic expectations for what life is going to really be like. And 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 since we're talking about the transition period, I think that's important for families to focus on. All right, so what's it going to be like those first couple of months when we're home with a child who? If, if it's international, doesn't speak our language, who doesn't know our food, who doesn't have any any point of reference, uh, or from a foster child who is coming to a, a place that has different contexts, again, different food, different expectations for behavior, different things. So all that is so new, and it's hard for, for families to prepare for that in advance, to have realistic expectations of an eight-year-old who will in some ways be a two-year-old on an emotional level and a perhaps a 13-year-old in life experience levels. That's, mm-hmm. an, that's a different position than just raising an eight-year-old. 
So I think that's setting those realistic expectations is really tough for new families, I think. I think some of the day-to-day kind of things, I, I know um, oftentimes it really is the food issues. You know, children need to eat about six times a day. So that could be a six times a day struggle. If, and, and again, address learning about these issues before you go into it or sleep. You know, you've just traveled a 12 hour time zone to bring home your child. You're exhausted. They're exhausted. You're on a totally different schedule. Of course, that, that transition is going to be really difficult. You're going to feel like you have the flu, even though you know you don't have the flu. And then you're trying to take care of this child. Uh, I was just talking to a relative who, who just newly adopted a child from India. And this child wants to be held all the time, a three-year-old. And that can be very, very exhausting to have somebody who wants to cling to you. And even if you're a very touchy-feely person mm-hmm. or you feel like, oh, my child doesn't want to, to be bonding. This is another issue that I see a lot with parents. Is my child attaching? And then they worry about the attachment because there's supposed to be some big moment of attachment. Mm-hmm. And they're really wondering. And then I'll go into the home and saying yes, this looks very normal for a child who's newly arrived. Everything looks very normal. And, but yet we want some kind of a checkoff list that this child is uh, attaching um, Mm -hmm. properly. So that, that's another stress that parents feel that they have to get it all right. Oh, I'm so glad you said that there is this, we have made attachment some mythical beast that's uh, of perfection that we have to seek and it has to happen immediately and, and and the fear that parents have when they feel like, you know, I I don't feel this overwhelming love for this child. I still feel like this child's babysitter, or I don't really even like this child right now. And so, what does that make me? And 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 what does that portend for the future? Are, are we going to be doomed to be one of those families that this, with a child with who won't attach, or a parent who is unable to attach, or something along those lines? And that's a lot of stress to be experiencing. It is. Yeah. It is. I'm so glad you said that. That is, and I, I am an attachment expert. And <laughs> sorry I, about that. Then. And obviously, <laughs> I believe in that. And yes. I obviously really support that. But you're right. I think it is. It is the only measuring stick that we have mm-hmm. sometimes. And we we do we, and it is very important. But I think families will think, oh, my child, unfortunately, we don't hear this term so much anymore, but reactive attachment disorder. I refuse to use the term just because all children come home on a continuum of attachment. And it doesn't mean because your child is doing X, Y, Z, they have rad and they, you know, and oh, my goodness, I got the rad child. You know, it is Mm -hmm. not that. And I really try to reassure parents that that. Uh, that is that is not so. Some kids have rat and some kids don't. No, mm-hmm. it, they all have attachment issues just related to what they've gone through. Mm-hmm. And over time is really what it takes is for them to attach with you. So I guess for this, uh, for the transition period, your advice would be to simplify, create predictable routines and don't expect don't expect something to happen miraculously from one moment to the next. It took a while yes. for this child to to come to you, and it's going to take a while to form to become the family, to become the have the bonds of, of parenthood. Right, and I do want to address foster parents here as well because one of the issues that, unlike as say adult, I say adoptees from um, 
from another country is usually when you adopted the foster care system, your child has already been in your home for a mm-hmm. while. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's all those issues related to, is this child going to stay with me? Is this child going to go somewhere else? Mm-hmm. And so transition with adoption has maybe taken two to three years already. And one of the things I do feel that we don't encourage enough because foster care is temporary is that when a child enters the home, you don't do the cocooning, you don't make special arrangements. If both parents are working, both parents are working, you're going to continue, you know, families sometimes don't miss a beat. And then all of a sudden you have a child, maybe six months, maybe two years later, maybe even longer, whom you finally have adopted. And you haven't really had that adoption transition per se. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so sometimes I think that people really need to really revisit that and really say, okay, now that this child is going to be part of the family, what do I need to do to create a special transition as an adoptee instead of just as a foster child? And some of that may be a, a new kind of cocooning. Maybe it doesn't mean you all stop everything that you're doing because your child might be bored if you do that. But maybe some other ways of slowing it all down and really doing some real healing work with your children mm-hmm. or your child um, who are mm-hmm. adopted through the foster care system. Another uh, pot- potential thing that foster parents face is that when the child is first placed with them, this is assuming the foster parent is the one who will, is going on to adopt mm-hmm. the child. Right. When the child is first placed with you, you're not viewing that child, nor should you, as your child for life, your forever child. This child is someone else's child, and your, your role is to ultimately uh, support reunification. And that's a different role than sliding into the role of a parent. Now, for some parents, there's it's a gradual process. Uh, as, as the child continues to live with you, the permanency plan for the child is being shifted. You're aware that it's being shifted. So that gives you time to slowly shift, get your mind around the idea, okay, that this is probably going to be a child that we will adopt. So I can begin to feel more like a parent to this child than a foster parent to the child. But for other people, they, they don't do that. Number one, they may not know that it's a gradual trend. They may not know that the permanency plan is shifting or it, it hasn't shifted and then it's only something that happens at the last moment that makes adoption final. Uh, or for whatever reason, they haven't had that. And, and so they they have to shift from thinking and they often have to make the decision of whether to adopt the child, even before that shift took place, of whether they want to become the parent versus the foster parent for that child. And that can be complicated. Mm-hmm. That's right, because we're expected to love a foster child as if we had given birth to that child, as if that child were fully ours, adopted or biological. Mm-hmm. But we're supposed to release that child as if we were the babysitter for the day. And, yeah, yeah. That's such and a we are not designed as human beings, we are asked to do this as foster parents, but we are not designed this way. Um, no. And so I think there is a transition, as you said, maybe when you see that the, the plan is permanency, that you begin to take on mm-hmm. uh, a more of a, a permanency in your attitude toward the child, because we are only human and that's all mm-hmm. that we can do. Exactly. And uh, again, embracing that and then maybe making some special plans with your family to, with that. Mm-hmm. 
This show, as well as all the many resources provided by Creating a Family at our website, creatingafamily.org, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners who not only believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre- and post-adoptive foster and kinship families, but they believe in that mission so much that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. One such partner is... Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international adoption home studies, and post adoption and foster to adopt programs. You can find them and get more information about them at vistadelmar.org. All right. I now want to shift to talking about post-adoption depression. Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I do think that that uh, uh, we have talked and I want to make certain that we are uh, not uh, over uh, overshadowing the fact that for the vast majority of people, uh, adoption brings mostly joy and that this is, is not the norm. However, the research has found similar levels of depression as well as anxiety symptoms in adoptive parents as in biological parents and uh, and, and similar uh, ratings on the postnatal depression scale so it's a it's similar it's not the most it's not the norm but it's also it's about as often as you will have postnatal depression families will have post adoption depression so let's start by by asking what is post-adoption depression? Well, post-adoption depression would look very much like depression, feeling blue. It could even have symptoms related to loss of appetite or increase in appetite, loss of weight, et cetera. Those kind of um, different sleep um, habits, sleeping more, sleeping less, as well as just that lethargy that you may feel, even the body aches that come with it. And just we all know what it's like to be down or to have the blues, but it's more than just having the blues or having a bad day. It kind of stays with you and you just don't feel like yourself. And you know that something is really wrong. Um, I might add that in kind of getting a little bit ahead, but that oftentimes people who do experience um, post-adoption depression, some people call it PAD, is that it, it's often in people who have a tendency toward depression, you know, a good portion of our population, we do suffer from some types of depression. And so you'll, it, it might feel more familiar even to you if you have a tendency to be depressed. Mm-hmm. Can anxiety, increased anxiety also be a symptom? Yes, yes, anxiety and depression often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And of course we know how our bodies can feel with anxiety and how that can take over us mm-hmm. uh, with that. And again, going back to stress, stress we think of more or less is increasing anxiety, not so much depression, but when our anxiety is very elevated and we feel completely out of control, then of course we can it can lead into depression. And some people, I literally believe that their go-to is anxiety, um, whereas some people maybe they're more they're more inclined to be depressed when mm-hmm. when a, a situation is very stressful. I think one of the complicating things here with postnatal depression, we think of it as being 
a hormonal something that happens to uh, your hormones are out of whack after the birth of a baby mm-hmm. and that we think of it as as having a biological cause and that makes it hard for adoptive parents to embrace the idea that they too could be suffering from a depression caused by the addition of a child in the family because they haven't had the hormonal uh, upheavals and i think that complicates oftentimes other people's as well as as our own ability to honor that we're going through something real. That's right, yes. Um, and just to kind of further go on about the anxiety and it being very real, again, going back to sort of these feelings of, am I a good enough parent? Am I attaching enough? That's gonna cause the anxiousness. And in that, you could start to feel irritated and agitated. And again, if you're adopting a little bit older child, some of their behavior can be irritated and agitated yeah. just naturally. I mean, they, they, they're often what we call dysregulated. And so mm-hmm. that can kind of compound uh, some of the issues. And you can also, again, feeling like a failure. You've gone, you maybe uh, particularly international adoption uh, that oftentimes people don't necessarily enter into that due to infertility. But if you have entered into an adoption, due to infertility, and you're already, again, feeling the shame, and then and then on top of that, somewhat of a failure um, for whatever reason, um, and then on top of that, you're gonna go ahead and um, feel feel uncomfortable, and that, again, leading to, to the blues, so mm-hmm. to speak. And guilt and shame often go in, in all of that as mm-hmm. well. And then just being overwhelmed. Overwhelmed yes. can make you depressed well, and, and anxious. And a total change of your whole life. I mean, and that that total upheaval of regardless if this is your first child or or a subsequent child, uh, oh, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, Oh, no, you know, what we had was pretty good. Now I've messed it all up. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, will I ever feel normal again? Will I ever, you know, get back into a routine again? So, yeah, all of that's very depression making, you know, or could be, it can potentially be. I like what you really said. What did I get myself into? <laughs> and you know, when parents adopt internationally, often they have spent $40,000 or more in an adoption. Mm-hmm. And then they also taken off lots of time from work and they've traveled overseas and they've gone through mountains of paperwork. Most adoptions include <laughs> mountains of paperwork. Yeah, yes. and, then, and then you're even questioning yourself. Did I do the right thing? Do I have regrets yeah. about this? And I thought this was the right thing. And especially those of the faith community, they said, they'll say, I thought God had called me to this. How could I have been so wrong? Mm -hmm. This is not working out the way I thought it. So your faith is even questioned. Mm -hmm. Did did God give me the wrong signal? So you could really see why people are, um, yeah, they can actually start to experience some depression. And then again, if I can't hear things right, or if I got this completely wrong, that's obviously going to create a lot of anxiety as well in your life. Am I making my other decisions in my life right? The other thing too, Dawn, that I I really want to bring up too, and I was just recently counseling a a client regarding this who has um, PAD. And it was really kind of related to this person's own relationship with a parent and not being able to connect with that parent. And then they adopted an older child and now they're not, he's, mm-hmm. the dad is not able to connect with the child. And he's feeling like, this is like, this is all over. I couldn't do it with my dad. And now I can't do it with my son. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
this can, again, bring up lots and lots of issues. And these children, and I will say, they will find your buttons. They will find your the triggers that bother you. And of course, we're going to feel down, depressed, anxious, however you want to label it. And, and I, again, I, I, it's, it's okay to put a label on it because I think sometimes it helps us define and maybe seek the right kind of treatment. But at the same time, just to know that it's normal, quote unquote, normal, but yet to do something about it if you are feeling depressed or anxious. But again, going back to these children, you are only human. And these children will, will find parts of you that you never knew were even there. And a lot of times what I say to people is, the very thing that maybe your child needs from you or the areas that you need to work on in your life that your child has brought out are the very areas in your life that you need to work on. And it could be a gift. It's a real painful gift. <laughs> and, but if you need to maybe grieve something from your past or work on a relationship or work on certain habits that you have that your child realizes that that's your, that's your um, weak point, mm-hmm. then, then that's maybe where you need to work on something. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not always easy. You know, you like your simple life that nobody else challenged you like this. And I got mm-hmm. to kind of keep my, my thing, my thing. And now I sort of have to change. Well, that's not very comfortable either. No. Yeah. I will often somewhat jokingly say, growth is overrated. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, I think from what you have uh, just said that uh, post-adoption depression is not limited to women. Uh, Dads can also have these feelings. Quite frankly, they can also have them uh, through the biological birth because it's the total change of everything, lack of sleep and different things. But dads can also have post-adoption depression. Um, and I think you mentioned that when we're trying to figure out who is at risk, uh, at least one of the factors you mentioned earlier is people who have struggled with depression at other times in their life, they're at higher risk as for post-adoption depression. Are there other risk factors? I, I, think, um, I think your preparedness and your self-care as well. Mm-hmm. And your, again, we talked about this before, your expectations. I think the higher your expectations are, uh, whenever we have things that don't, anything in our life that doesn't meet our expectations, that causes disappointment. Mm-hmm. That can cause us to feel down and, mm-hmm. and, and eventually into a stage of, of depression. And there's a grief that we also experience mm-hmm. when we have a loss of something. We lost our independence. We lost our time together. We lost the way life used to be. I just lost $40,000 because I spent this on an adoption. Anytime we have that, we don't get back what we thought we should get back. That is can also cause, of course, um, you to feel uh, down. And I and I keep saying down because again, like as I talked about attachment being on a spectrum, also um, depression is also on a spectrum. So it's not like oh yes, I have full blown depression, and you may have, or you may just be sad or blue. And um, I guess which would possibly lead us into self-care when you do adopt. So Mm -hmm. well, and and also going into it as much as you can, realizing that the first six months are going to feel different. Give yourself a lot of grace during that period. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both you and give your child a lot of grace, that combination, lower your expectations. But that leads us directly into what should you do if you think you're suffering from post-adoption depression? Well, certainly talking with someone about what you're going through and seeing if this is truly, am I really depressed? Looking at, you know, with our symptomology checklist that 
uh, someone can go through. I mean, you can actually go online and look at it too. It's not a mystery as to what are the uh, signs of really full depression. And especially if you're starting to lose interest in things, like if you just find, oh yes, I know this child is here, but I really used to enjoy um, saying eating certain kinds of food or going for a walk with my wife or whatever. And you're saying, I don't even want to do that. Then that probably is a really good sign that yes, you really are into depression. Then you may want to get some medical consultation. I'm not a real big fan of going on meds. I, I think there's a lot of you know controversy there, but at the same time, sometimes meds can be a bridge. This mm-hmm. is a very unique time in your life. It's a special time, just like if you were going to the dentist and you want a little something just to ease the, the anxiety. I'm really big on that. When I go to the dentist, yes, I'd like a little something to take the edge off. You may need something to go ahead and take the to take the edge of, mm-hmm. off of that. If you feel like a child is really bringing out some real other issues and really triggering you, and maybe you're going to places that you really haven't really wanted to go to, then I would say obviously some counseling. Um, for you as well, um, some individual counseling. And then your child, him or herself, may also need to be in counseling with you. I'm really about parent-child counseling, not just sending your child to counseling, but you're being an integral part of that mm-hmm. um, is, is often very important. I do therapy, and I see that a lot of times parents, obviously they have their own issues that they bring. And, and actually through the activities and exercises that we do, a lot of it is healing really for the parents as well. And when you are parenting and you are parenting well, a lot of your own issues can be healed. And, and not that we're using a child to heal our own issues, no, but, but certainly yeah. good parenting is very, is, is a growth experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're using life to help you grow past mm-hmm. struggles. And that's, yeah, in child is part of your life. Absolutely. So the getting help, acknowledging that it's normal, cutting yourself some slack, focusing on self-care um, during this period and, and and not expecting it to happen immediately. I think it helps for at least some people to think in terms of, you know, oh yeah, a transition, that's a week or two. I think it's really helpful to go into this thinking the transition period is longer than that. At a minimum, it's six months. Uh, And I think that if you set your expectations for a length of time, that makes you more patient with the process. Exactly. And then as you know, you say six months, but let's say a child before you're even going to take them, say to medical appointments or anything like that, usually a month just to give them a baseline of a child going, say, from an orphanage to your home. Um, and, and just the developmental strides that they may take even within that month and then having an assessment. And then of course your child is, is growing in many ways in leaps and bounds and some of that growth and then familiarization with you, um, can also mean changes in personality. So yes, you have that six month transition, but that's like saying with a newborn, oh, it's a transition having a baby. Well, as soon as you go through you know, six months, now they're crawling and now there's a new transition. Same thing with a child coming from another country, they are changing. And yeah. so you may find that, yes, we've entered into a different stage. It may be better, it may be worse in some ways. Again, cutting yourself slack and then other issues um, may be coming up as well. The other thing I wanted to say, you know, even going back to take some self-care, again, going back to cocooning, and I, and I kind of mentioned this before that, the cocooning itself could be good and it could be good for attachment, but it may not be really good for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, cutting out the world is probably one of the most unhealthy things that we could do for ourselves and for our mental health. And so as much as you want to do that, 
you also have to go ahead and give yourself a break. Bring in mm-hmm. other people. We'll say, oh yeah, don't let grandma around. Don't let this person around. Yeah, that might be good for a couple of weeks, but nobody can live with one person, one child being, they're all giving person, even two parents, that all giving person to just one person mm-hmm. 24 seven, that'll drive you crazy. Yeah. Um, so in, in a broad sense of the word, driving you crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so again, give yourself that is not official diagnosis yeah. <laughs> um, just give, do give yourself some some real uh slack as you said and knowing that certain things are going to have to go especially if you have perfectionistic tendencies get help ask for ask for meals and people say to you oh is there anything i could do for you now that that child has come home whether it's a newborn infant or a 10 year old and i know you may have that over that sort of guilt like well so-and-so has a 10-year-old and they don't need meals brought to them. Well, you're, you're you know what? It's yeah. okay. Yeah. Say, yeah. You know what? A couple of meals would be really helpful and tell a few people that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you want to come and clean my bathrooms, it's okay. <laughs> um, and I have offered to this relative, I'm going to come clean your bathrooms because you know, I hear from families what they need. I would never have offered that to anybody. What's yeah. the matter with you? You have a three-year-old. I didn't have somebody come clean my bathrooms when I had a three-year-old, you know? Yeah. But hey, that's what that that's that's what people do need. And let people know that's what you need. Yeah, don't be afraid to to allow to honor this transition period. You are changing your life and, and mm-hmm. in a good way, but that doesn't make it easy. So honor the fact that you're going through a big transition. And that comes in that same honor you can give to your child who is also going through a big transition. So yes, mm-hmm. thank you so much, Laura Jean Beauvais, for being with us today to talk about transitioning home as a newly adoptive parent. Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family. Our partners are our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week.